This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Okay, everyone, we are going to uh, get started. It looks like um, mostly everyone has made their way into the room now and has settled in. Welcome to the University of Chicago Legal Forum Symposium Keynote. This year, we're doing things a little differently. Rather than having one speaker talk for 40 minutes and opening up the floor to questions, we thought it'd be more interesting to have a conversation between two giants in their fields. (laughs) We invited Emily Buss to ask Valerie Jarrett about some of the challenging issues we face as a country in what has been called the Me Too era. Afterward, as time allows, we will open up the floor for some of your questions. I'm delighted to introduce both Emily Buss and Valerie Jarrett today. Professor Buss received her BA summa cum laude from Yale University, as well as her JD from Yale Law School. After graduating from law school, Buss clerked for Judge Lewis H. Pollock of the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania and Justice Harry A. Blackman of the U.S. Supreme Court. Her research interests include children's and parents' rights and the legal system's allocation of responsibility for children's development among parent, child, and state. In recent years, she has focused particular attention on the developmental impact of court proceedings on children in the juvenile justice system. She currently serves as an associate reporter for the American Law Institute's Restatement on Children and the Law, In addition to courses focused on the subjects of her research, Buss teaches civil procedure, evidence, and family law. Valerie Jarrett is a distinguished senior fellow here at the University of Chicago Law School and was the longest-serving senior advisor to President Barack Obama. She oversaw the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs and chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. She championed the creation of equality and opportunity for all Americans and the economic and political empowerment of women in the United States and around the world. She oversaw the administration's advocacy for workplace policies that empower working families, including equal pay, raising the minimum wage, paid leave, paid sick days, workplace flexibility, and affordable child care and led the campaigns to reform our criminal justice system, end sexual assault, and reduce gun violence. She currently serves on the boards of Aerial Capital Management Holdings, 2U, and Lyft, and she is also senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and ATTN. We are truly honored to have Ms. Jarrett and Professor Buss here to discuss some of the many questions many of us may be considering as we encounter the persistent problems of sexual discrimination and harassment in our society. On behalf of the University of Chicago Law School, welcome. Thank you, and I want to join my expression of how honored I am to have this opportunity to be, to be up here. And we want to make sure to leave some time for your questions as well. So um, be thinking about how to best use a very precious hour we have uh, for, this, for this discussion. Um, so maybe starting off, sort of picking up on some of those uh, points in your very impressive introduction, you have played many leadership roles in municipal government, the White House, 
of course, um, and corporations, nonprofits. Um, how do you see those various roles? Uh, what role do you see them playing, and, and where would you place your greatest optimism at this stage in terms of thinking about moving uh, progress, moving forward on issues of harassment and, and protection of women? Good place to start. Uh, thank you, Emily, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be back on campus. I've spent most of this uh, quarter traveling around the country, so there's no place like home. Um, I think all of the institutions that you mentioned, both the private sector, government, the not-for-profit uh, world, have very important roles to play, uh, some in concert, some independently. So government, for example, uh, particularly the federal government with oversight um, over both Title IX and Title VII has the opportunity to say, these are the parameters uh, that we are going to set forth to protect the civil rights for everyone. And for students on campus, of course, the universities and colleges that receive federal funding, well, the federal government has a right to attach some strings to that as well. But I look at those as the outer boundaries uh, of where uh, behavior should be. Uh, the not-for-profit world, many of uh, who are advocates and um, experts in this area, I probably would put universities in that in terms of the academics, such as you who study this field, have the opportunity to provide evidence-based uh, evidence strategies to help end harassment and, and um, sexual violence. And so I think those are important. In the private sector, since that's where we spend most of our waking hours, those of us who are in the private sector, also has an opportunity to set a tone and a set of expectations for its workplace. And what I am, um, one note that I'm optimistic about is certainly on the boards that I'm on, and I have a lot of colleagues that talk about this issue as well, you're seeing a lot more proactive steps that are being taken by employers to ensure that they're creating a work environment um, where everybody can thrive. And it can be um, issues as important as equal pay, but it also can be issues where people come to work and don't have to worry about being harassed um, or assaulted in the workplace. And then the final point I guess I'd make on this issue is, is that it's also the individuals. Uh, I mean, another way that the universities are involved is we launched, while I was in the White House, this initiative called It's On Us on college campuses across the country. And there we were trying to change the culture. And yes, the Department of Education beefed up its civil rights division, which has unfortunately been weakened, and tried to set forth some parameters. But we also called on the students and the, uh, the student leaders and the fraternities and the sororities and the alumni associations and the campus police and the administrators and everyone and said, look, collectively, what kind of a place do we want to be? Do we want to be a place where everybody can come and learn and not have to worry about what happens to you um, if you go to a party? Um, or do we want to be a place where it's a different culture? And so I mentioned this in addition to the institutions because the institutions are really only as strong as the individuals collectively insist that they be. And so I want to frame the broader picture. So the, the short answer is a lot every one of us can do. And currently, I'm pleased to say, are doing. Um, so picking up on uh, many points in there, but one of them was you mentioned the, the guidelines, the Obama administration's guidelines I think you're referring to uh, concerning uh, Title IX and, the, and essentially directing uh, schools and universities receiving federal funds to follow certain procedures, provide protections for uh, women and girls who are experiencing harassment or sexual violence. And of course those guidelines have been revoked and sort of the understanding is likely replaced by something that is... Um, 
narrower in various ways, um, less protective. Um, certainly, at least part of the coverage suggests that the the one of the one of the points they're making is the sort of concern for the the due process of the accused. And I wondered if you could comment on sort of your sense of what has what has been lost, whether there's something to the the objection identified, and where we're going. Uh, uh, no, in short, I don't think there's anything to the objection that's been identified. Arnie Duncan, who uh, was the Secretary of Education at the time, put out what's called a Dear Colleague letter, and he thought as a result, well, let's just back up for a step. One in five women are sexually assaulted while in college, and that's probably an underestimate because we all know that there's evidence that most people don't report, so that's a guesstimate. If it were anything else we were talking about, that would be an epidemic. It simply would be an epidemic. And uh, men are harassed as well. It's just in, in fewer numbers. So we tend to use women as the example, but I'm as concerned about men experiencing sexual harassment or assault as I am about women. And so the question put before Secretary Duncan was, do we think that colleges and universities are doing enough? considering that part of their responsibility under Title IX is to provide an environment where everyone can learn equally and thrive. And with the evidence of the, of the degree of, of sexual assault, coupled with uh, many examples of where colleges and universities just simply brushed this issue under the rug, he decided they needed more guidance. And that's why he set forth the letter. And the letter has in it plenty of opportunities for colleges and universities to come up with procedures that uh, provide due process. There was nothing in his letter that was intended to, to tilt the scale. It was to make sure that everybody knew that there would be a transparent process, that they could understand that people who um, were um, had been assaulted would have a place that they could go, uh, a safe place where they could go. They could have a choice with whether or not to report it to the university or to take a criminal path and report it to the police, to give them options and ensure that everybody knows what those options were, and to try to figure out ways of educating people, particularly when they first come on campus, because evidence also shows that most of the times when there is an assault, it happens within the um, first couple of weeks of school, freshman and sophomore years. And so a lot of what Arnie tried to do was to help colleges and universities figure out how they could put in place training programs that weren't the kind that people just laugh and make fun of, but were actually helpful. And, uh, and I should say that this was a process where we had a lot of engagement um, um, before the Dear Colleague letter came out. And then subsequent to that, President Obama set up a task, a task force simply on sexual assault on college campuses that I co-chaired along with uh, Lynn Rosenthal, who was in the vice president's office. And first time there had ever been anyone in the White House whose sole responsibility was to end violence against women. And so in that process, Lynn and I engaged every possible stakeholder, all the ones that I mentioned before, and said, you know, what should we be doing here? And so I, I give you that background to say that we didn't do this arbitrarily or capriciously. We did it quite thoughtfully based on the evidence that we were seeing in the marketplace. And so it is very disappointing to see that um, wound back. And the silver lining here, I always try to find a silver lining, keeps me optimistic, is, is that there are still hundreds of college campuses around the country who have It's On Us initiatives and are really hard at work to change the culture, recognizing that they may not get the kind of uh, carrot or stick from the federal government that they had before, but that they recognize that there should be a sense of urgency and that we shouldn't be surprised 
when we have assault and violence, uh, sexual violence in the workplace, uh, which is why years ago I went to the Bloomberg editorial board and I brought this issue of sexual assault on college campuses up because I said those are the people who are going to be in your workforce tomorrow. They're going to be the people who are running your businesses. They're going to be the, the marketplace. And so if we can tackle the problem while in college, then won't we be producing um, a better workforce? So changing, changing focus a little bit, um, chair of the, uh, you were chair of the White House Council on Women and Girls, this was mentioned, and one of the things you did in that role is to bring attention to issues of economic inequality. And I wonder if you could talk about the role that in, uh, economic inequality plays in all the issues raised and addressed in the Me Too movement. Well, uh, oftentimes sexual assault and harassment is really as much about power as it is about sex. You could argue it's more about power. And when power is unevenly distributed, then there is um, the ability to take advantage of it unless there are these checks and balances that we talked about a minute ago. And so there is obviously evidence that women who are in positions where they don't have power, they don't have a voice to speak up, uh, just imagine um, a minimum wage woman who is working two shifts to try to take care of her children um, she's a single mom, so her income is very important to the family. Now, 40% of working moms are the sole or primary breadwinner in their family. So a woman's contribution to the family income is more important than ever. And so what is she to do if she's experiencing harassment in the workplace from her boss? What choices does she have? Very few. If it's just she feeling all alone. And so I'm really concerned that particularly for women who aren't in positions of power and influence, who are worried about the retaliation that they will inevitably suffer, who do not feel that their workplace has a place for them to go where they can complain safely without retribution, uh, creates this increased uh, dichotomy and disparity and, um, and leaves them powerless. And so one of the things that I think we all should be trying to do is to how to figure out how to even up that scale a little bit. And I think there's a role, again, for government, and I think there's also a role for the private sector, and there's a role for all of you. And I think what we've been seeing through the social activism is where people who might have previously been hesitant to come forward, because let's face it, I mean, what could be more personal than sexual assault? And so for you to be willing to come forward and talk about it openly, um, even reporting it on campus, let alone reporting it and having it end up in the press, it's a lot easier to do, and it's never easy, but it's a lot easier to do if you know that you've got a cohort that's supportive of you. Other lessons from your time working with the council? Oh, my gosh. Well, so many. I mean, first, well, I suppose, and I alluded to this a little bit in the beginning, which is that the reason why President Obama created the council the way he did it, and we looked at what other administrations had done, and there had been, he had predecessors who had, within the White House, say, a, an office uh, that was um, an advocacy office for women. And what we decided we wanted was really an all-of-government approach, all-of-federal government approach, and so the White House Council on Women and Girls was comprised of representatives from every agency in the federal government. And I chaired it from March of 2009, his first year, until the last day there. And uh, the council members changed within the agency, but they always had to be selected by the secretary because we wanted it to be somebody who the secretary um, respected and who um, they could get right in there and argue 
uh, when they needed to, to be advocates for women and girls. And our charge from President Obama was to look at every policy, every program, every piece of legislation we supported through the lens of whether or not it improved the lives of women and girls. And if it didn't, then we had an opportunity to raise our hand and say, we object. And um, if it did, then we had a chance to say yes, and let's do more. And so it was terrific. And uh, we worked on everything from equal pay to paid leave to paid sick days. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a paid leave policy. The only developed country. How could that be? And if you think about how portable people are right now, you can work from just about anywhere. And the best way that we have a competitive advantage are the human resources we have, the people. And so the basket of issues we called working families issues, which were paid leave and equal pay and increasing the minimum wage and workplace flexibility and affordable childcare and an environment free from harassment, that basket we believe uh, that there is mounting evidence that shows employers who recognize um, how important it is to address those issues will have a more productive, more efficient, happier uh, workforce uh, and less turnover, and in the private sector, ultimately more profitable. And so one of the ways that we thought we would approach the issue of women and girls is uh, not just through this is a nice-to-do, but that this is a business imperative. If you want to be globally competitive, then you better start removing those barriers or else you're going to leave half of your talent on the sidelines. And one data point, and I haven't done research on it since I left, but President's Council on Economic Advisors determined that um, in the field of computer science, women stay on average three years. What's the number one reason they leave? Culture. Culture. And so culture matters. And uh, I believe tone starts at the top of every organization. And culture is something that you have to really work at every single day. And so through our council, we tried to hold up best practices to say, this is what works. And bring in people who were walking the walk and talking the talk and say, look, this is how we did it, and to share those best practices. And so one of the um, events that we had before we left in uh, the summer of 2016 was a summit in Washington that we called the United State of Women, and it gave us a chance to provide a snapshot of all the ways in which we had tried to help women and girls in the administration, everything from working with the movie and entertainment industry to get rid of the implicit biases. When we first started, I had movie um, studio heads tell me, well, we can't have a woman in a starring role, or we can't have their name in the title, or they can't be in, you know, feels like science and math because boys won't go watch those movies, men won't watch them. Well, now you see that that's all changed. Um, toys, Barbies, for example now reflect a broader cross-section of girls. Uh, and these implicit biases make a huge difference later on. So we've worked on that. We encourage science and um, technology for girls. We had a science fair, and President Obama would meet with his little five-year-olds who had superhero um, capes on to try to say it's cool to be in these fields if you want to. You don't have to. I didn't have any aptitude for it, but I like to think that I could have if I'd wanted to. Uh, as well as the workplace policies um, that I mentioned, including being free of sexual violence. And then now we've turned it into, um, uh, since the White House has disbanded the White House Council of Women and Girls, we now have taken the United State of Women, turned it into a 501c3, and it continues to this day, and I co-chair it with a 
Tina Chen, my partner in crime, and we had another summit in L.A. last summer and had even more people come and many more online, and we're just trying to continue to highlight the best practices of what works uh, uh, to enable people to take it to scale. And for that, you actually don't need government. Would it be better to have government as a partner? Absolutely. Would we, be, would we benefit from federal legislation? Sure, on a whole range of issues. But in their absence, there's still a lot we can do. And also, I should mention, at the state and local level. First of all, I'm just wowed by how much you do have done and are still doing it all at the same time. I care time. a lot about this stuff, as you can tell. I could give your whole yes. lecture on any of these um, topics. So, well, that makes me think. So, so probably many in the room are sort of already sold and excited to hear all the different sort of opportunities and the things you've done to support them. What about encountering the skeptic? Like, do you have a, a, a story to tell or, you know, sort of advice to give about what you do when you're confronting someone who starts out like, oh, yeah, we know what that's going to be about, and, you know, that's, that's not where we are. We just wear them down. We don't give up. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this, this subject, and since I have a captive audience, I'll, I'll, I'll play with it with you, which is that I'm... And, and unfortunately, universities are the exception to this rule, but I'm worried that we are getting out of the habit of talking to skeptics. And I love to talk to a skeptic, uh, one, that's, one that's coming to the table in good faith. And I had the experience in the White House of working with people about which I disagreed about many, many different issues, but there was a kernel of common ground, and so we worked on that. And the, the examples I often give are... Uh, Coke Brothers, uh, Coke Industries, probably no company um, spent more money trying to ensure President Obama didn't get elected and then re-elected than, than the Koch Brothers did. Uh, but their general counsel is very interested in criminal justice reform. And he came to the White House, and I heard he was showing up, and I was curious to meet this person, uh, having heard so much about them. And so I went to the meeting. I said, why are you interested in criminal justice reform? And he told me the story about how the, uh, when he was in between college and law school, he worked in a local prison in his community. And there were people who he'd grown up with who were locked up. And he said he'd done the same things that they had done. He just either hadn't gotten caught or he had a safety net. He was a little elusive as to exactly how far he'd gone. <laughs> but, um, but his point was an important one, which is that the guys that were locked up didn't have that safety net. They didn't get the second chance. And so he, he said every night when he left um, work, he felt really badly that he was leaving them behind. And so his entire career, he's been working on this. And the reason why we wanted to work with him is that we were trying to get legislation through Congress to reduce mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent drug offenders. And um, a lot of moms are in that category. And a lot of moms are there through no fault of their own if you really looked at it case by case. But judges would be the first to tell you that their hands are tied because of these mandatory minimum sentences. And so Mark Holden said, look, I'll work with you. And as a result of that, we were able to get 80 votes in the Senate to support criminal justice reform. I will say Leader McConnell, one person, was able to stop it from coming up for a vote. But it does show you the benefit of working with people with whom you disagree about other matters. And on this one, we actually found we both compromised on some, th some things because we were willing to sit down and, and roll up our sleeves. And so the example for you, Emily, would be oftentimes I heard from small businesses, well, I can't afford those benefits because I'm just barely making ends meet. And so we, of course, said, okay, let's see, let's test that. And we went to the marketplace and we asked for employers who were small businesses who did support these policies to come forward. And one I will remember forever, and it was a woman who owned a small business. She had about 15 employees. 
And she required um, everyone to take $3,000 in cash every year that had to go towards a vacation. And so I said, well, why did you do that? She said, first of all, in small business, everybody could work seven days a week and never take time off. And I, want, I cared about my workers because I only had 15. I knew them all. I knew their families. And she said, what better way to avoid uh, turnover than to get the families on board? Because those families were like, don't you dare quit that job. I want that 3000 bucks for my vacation. And so um, that's one of many examples because we wanted, to, we wanted to debunk the myth that small businesses couldn't afford it. And what this particular business said to me is, look, I can't afford turnover. Do you know what it costs me to bring somebody else up to speed? It's far, far more expensive than $3,000 a year to have a vacation. And then when they left, they had creative ways of covering each other's shifts, and, and they all really acted as a team, which built better consensus, et cetera. And so we would go after those who said, well, we can't do it because of X, and then try to debunk it and give them the evidence and just keep at it. And it's hard to change people's minds, particularly when they're busy and they're like, look, my business is working and I don't want to do anything different and I, I got this. And we, we want to say, well, what about this? And change is hard. That's one of the things we did learn over the last 10 years. Change is really hard, but worth it. So looking at around the room, I'd say you and I are among a small group that remembers the uh, Clarence Thomas uh, hearings and the Anita Hill testimony. That would probably tree, be yeah. true. Um, you guys were what? Not even born, right? Oh, goodness don't, don't gracious. Yeah, don't never ask. mind. Never ask. mind. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, you weren't even born. So <laughs> asking you to sort of reflect and compare that what, what you remember and what you saw to the, the Kavanaugh hearings and the experience with, with Christine Ford's testimony and allegations. What's so, changed? Well, a lot has changed. And I think, uh, look, I, for one, was very disappointed in the outcome and disappointed in the process. And usually I can live with a disappointed outcome if I feel good about a process. And here I didn't feel good about the process. And I didn't feel good about the process for Anita Hill either. And I think um, part of the way we solve that is to have more women run for office. I think that not just on this issue but more broadly that one of the things I learned after eight years in Washington is, is that we would just benefit if there were more representation of the country at the table. And since we're half the country, we should be in higher numbers. I'll give you another example. Um, a committee was established to look at the Affordable Care Act and trying to figure out how to repeal it um, last year. And the committee was comprised of 20 men. Well, you know what? A rather important provision in the Affordable Care Act is preventive care for women. I actually want somebody at the table who looks like me and has my body weighing in on how important that is to do or not. And so um, I'm a strong believer that we need to have better uh, representation than we currently have um, in Washington. And I could give you a whole... There is, there is hope on that as well. There are more women running for office, not just in Congress, but all around the country, state and local government. There's a level of activism, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time, and I think that's all good. But now I forgot what the actual question well, was. Well, I was asking you to compare the... Oh, the, oh yes, the yes, years. yes. All right, so I digressed. Uh, so Anita Hill, I remember watching a fair amount of the hearing on television. Uh, but you had to either watch it live on TV or you had to see what the evening news decided to repeat in a pretty small soundbite that night. And so you, you didn't have the opportunity, as I did with the Kavanaugh hearings, to see absolutely every minute. I was, as happenstance would have it, flying cross-country 
um, on the day um, of the first hearing. And then uh, I was flying again when um, Christine Wiley Ford testified, and I'd just gotten to my hotel before uh, now Justice Kavanaugh testified again. So I saw the whole thing. And if I hadn't seen the whole thing, I could have seen the whole thing um, with my device. And so I think access to information was a lot more prevalent this time. Um, And I think because of social media and because of that um, information on demand, you saw a lot more activism uh, on behalf of the American people than you saw with Anita Hill. There was certainly outrage, and I think, uh, for one at least, our senator here in Illinois lost his re-election because of his vote uh, for Anita Hill. So there were some consequences. In fact, there were many women elected around the country. Uh, and so you'd like to think you'd made more progress by now than perhaps we have, uh, but progress takes time. As I mentioned to Emily before uh, we came in, that... Well, I didn't tell you the whole story. So one year from my birthday, President Obama gave me a um, a signed copy, don't know where he got it, of the Petition for Universal Suffrage, signed by people like Susan B. Anthony, and and it was really cool. Uh, It was a really nice present, and then, (laughs) it was, it was really nice. And then framed next to it was the resolution when Congress uh, gave women the right to vote. It was nearly 50 years between the two. And I think so, and and he put them side by side because no doubt I was expressing frustration about how slowly things were going. And his point was, of course, things take time. And that oftentimes those of us who start the race and uh, carry the baton in the first part don't finish the race. And the point is to hand it off and to hand it off to the stewards who will carry it. And so in a sense, uh, you know, I had, uh, I worked the reason why I was the longest serving senior advisor is I started on January 20th, 2009, and at like one minute to noon on January 20th of 2017, right when I think the Secret Service was going to lift me up and take me out the door. Um, so I had the whole, I had that whole period, and that's all you got. And then the question is, you know, who do you hand it off to? And it doesn't have to be people in the White House, as I mentioned to you, with It's On Us and a lot of the work that we're doing around the whole basket of working families issues. But that's the point, is, is it, it takes time, and you just have to be patient. And I think on the... But I, and I suppose the, um, the troubling footnote is I had the sense with Anita Hill, Emily, I'll be interested in what you think, that they actually didn't believe her. Here, I think they did, they just didn't care. And I think in a way that's worse. I think it's worse. I'm not sure. I I haven't had time to ruminate that yet. But I had the feeling that they actually thought Anita Hill wasn't telling the truth. Here, I think they actually did believe her. It's complicated, and it I would love to take over, and we have a great chat on this. We have to separately discuss. I'd yes. love to talk more about that, because I was able to actually watch the whole hearing. We happened to be on vacation, speaking of vacations. Yeah. We spent it all watching uh, the, the, the hearings. No, the Clarence oh, Thomas. Oh, Clarence oh, Thomas, because oh, yeah. you were saying you could yes, only watch yes. it. It was just, like, transfixing, because yes. it was really in this such a first, I yes. think. you know, And, and um, uh, yeah, certainly there was some amount of uh, incredulity, I agree, um, today. Kind of psychoanalyzing what happened this time around, I think, is complicated also. Might be too soon. Yeah. One of the things I would say that you see, as you mentioned, anger with, with Anita Hill, and I think there was, and there were real sort of a political response as well, uh, but you really see the anger now, right? Yes. Um, and, I, and, and I wonder if you'll comment on, in general, sort of the tone of discourse, sort of on and Me Too, very much sort of brought to a fore in the, in the Kavanaugh hearings and what followed, um, but maybe more generally, sort of the tone of political discourse these days and that very evident 
Um, is that is that where we should be? Is that is that is that a part of an appropriate and important response? Is it troubling and will get in the way? Okay, that's a that's a big piece of business. Okay, so first of all, I strongly support the Me Too movement. I think, as I said earlier, that it's very hard to come forward unless you know people have your back, and that the social media provided a very important um, chamber of support to the brave women who came forward initially. And that that built momentum and, and that there, was, there were processes driven by the media, fortunately, and social media, that led to consequences. And that was a real wake-up call. I mean, a lot of men um, reacted interestingly, feel it, particularly men of a certain age, who, for them, a lot of this uh, more um, less egregious sexual harassment was totally, totally tolerable. I haven't found any men yet who thought that some of the more egregious should be, the criminal behavior should be tolerable. But a lot of what uh, women my age just learned to put up with was something that the men of our age did quite comfortably, and certainly men 10 years older did quite comfortably. And so we needed a shot in the arm. We needed a real jolt. And the anger is completely justifiable because they have been violated and there has been an abuse of power. And without a loud voice to, to demand consequences, the status quo would continue. I think we are seeing broadly a lot of activism around the country in the last couple of years. Uh, a study I looked at said that one in five people have participated in a demonstration in the last uh, two years. My guess is some in this room have actually done that. That's a pretty unusual statistic. Uh, and so I think activism is very good. But, but then... That's really a different question than tone. And I think tone is important. I think tone starts at the top, and I think everybody has some um, responsibility to the tone that they have. And as we learn when we're young, it's a lot easier to listen to somebody who isn't screaming at you. And so I think what we have to figure out, and it, it, it takes strength to take down the decibel. Uh, and I think there's a time for a high decibel, but then I think when you're really trying to work on an issue with people who are in positions to, to affect policy and affect practice and affect culture, then we have to figure out how to have a conversation in a way where people can hear. And one of the ways that I think it's, uh, is quite powerful is through storytelling. And I think you know, when I say one in five women are assaulted on college campus, that might get one reaction. But when I tell you a story about a freshman at Amherst where my daughter attended... Uh, who came out of um, her dorm room and was raped by a guy who lived down the hall from her uh, her first week on campus. And she said that her first year of campus felt like she was going through pantomime. She just went through the motions. She doesn't remember what classes she took. She doesn't remember um, anything other than every time she came out of her door, she would look down the hall to see if he was in the hallway. And she didn't come forward until her sophomore year, somebody else was raped by the same guy. And then she realized, oh, my goodness, I have to come forward so that he doesn't do it again. And then the two of them came forward. And she told this story when she introduced Vice President Biden when we were announcing the task force findings that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago in the East Room of the White House, open press. And she's still, you know, a very young woman. And the courage it took for her to do that. But she said, 
it will be more powerful if I tell that story than if you just say the statistic. And so one of the ways that I try to reach people is by telling them these stories so that they can have some empathy because I think what is missing from all of the advantages of technology is that we can hide behind this um, veil of anonymity where you don't have to actually look into the faces of people who you say terrible things about. You can just hit and run. And that that loosens up people's behavior and doesn't appeal to the goodness in them. And when you're sitting down having a meal with somebody, as we are today, it just changes the tone. And, it, and I, think, I think civility is important. And I think that, that, yes, you have to make noise and that there's a time and place for demonstrations and there's a time and place for, for a lot of noise. But I think it has to be coupled with civility unless we just want to make noise. If we want to actually affect change and we want to reach the people who are in positions to affect that change, beginning in our own homes sometimes, then we have to change that tone a bit. And I'm worried that, that your generation is getting out of that, is not developing that skill set. And that's going to hurt, hurt you in the workplace too because unless you're working remote, it's still, and even if you're working remote, if you say the kinds of things to your bosses that you would say on Twitter, at least on my Twitter feed, then you're not going to last very long. And so we have got to learn to communicate in a way where we can actually bring out the best in one another. And that's how, that's how we move forward. And that's how positive change needs to happen. So I'm worried about the tone. I'm worried about the toxicity. And I think it, it's, look, um, a lot of really good people who I think would be wonderful elected officials quite reasonably shy away from running for office. And I spend a lot of time trying to talk people into running for office right now. And um, they shy away from it because of the tone. And, and it's scary out there. And you know, people are sending pipe bombs around the country and, and harassing and calling for violence. It's scary. And so I think it would do our democracy a world of good if we took that down many notches. So maybe that's a it's a it's a good uh, point to ask. You've seen a number of different social movements over the course of your life. Probably been involved in different ways, different times. Um, you're now focusing a lot of attention on um, criminal justice reform. Yes. Um, can you? What do you learn from other movements that sort of inform how you think about Me Too and how to move forward in Me Too? Yeah. Both. Well. Well. Yes. So uh, you cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good. And what I mean by that is that uh, I think in Washington, you know, every bill that passes is never perfect because you have to compromise in order to get votes. And I think that's important. I mean, the Affordable Care Act angered a lot of our supporters because it wasn't the public option. Well, we would have loved the public option. We couldn't get it passed. So we did what we thought we could do. Uh, and I think compromise shouldn't be a, a dirty word in a country as richly diverse as ours. If you want to get things done... You really do have to compromise a bit. Um, the other way I don't think you should let perfect be the enemy of the good is that if you can't develop a national policy to solve an issue, well, then you've got to develop a state and local plan. And I enjoyed doing that. One of my responsibilities was uh, being in charge of or being the liaison for all of the state and local elected officials other than members of Congress. So I had all the great elected officials, like the mayors and the governors and the state legislatures, the city aldermen here in Chicago, you name it. Uh, attorneys general. And so, for example, when we were unable to get a national paid leave policy, 
Uh, Congress hasn't really done anything on that since the um, FMLA, which gives you 12 weeks unpaid leave. But again, if you're, how many people can take 12 weeks off unpaid? Lawyers, maybe, but most people can't. Um, and so um, we wanted a paid leave policy. Well, we couldn't get it. And so now, though, if you look around the country, there are states and cities that are passing requirement for paid leave. There are states and cities that are raising the minimum wage. There are states and cities that are mandating affordable child care. Uh, there are employers that are doing all of the above. And so I think um, I would put criminal justice in the same bucket where um, although it was important to us to have a national standard for, say, reducing uh, mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug offenders. There are only a couple hundred thousand people in the federal prisons. Most of the people, as you know, are at the state and local level, 2.2 million. And so we were really just trying to provide a template for what could be duplicated at the state and local level and provide some guidelines on trying to keep people out of the system in the first place, reforming the system and making it fairer, which is why we did this whole effort on 21st century policing, because we know that uh, communities of color suffer disproportionately a breach in that trust from law enforcement. And also trying to figure out, for the 600,000 people who are released from prison every year, are we going to take steps to give them an opportunity to rejoin society as responsible adults and give them a job? Uh, and so a lot of that effort can happen at the state and local level. Another good example, which is maybe my favorite example, because it came out well, it was like a happy ending, is um, same-sex marriage. So when President Obama took office, I think it was two states legalized same-sex marriage. And then before the Supreme Court ruled in 2015, it was um, 37 states in the District of Columbia. So in just six years, just imagine all the work that had to take place state by state, house, to get that done. And then the Supreme Court ruled. And one of the things I'm interested in is the psychology of the Supreme Court because I query whether they would have reached the same constitutional decision in 2009 as they did six years later. They had to have been influenced by the fact that 37 states in the District of Columbia had deemed that it was okay to do. And so, um, and so in some senses, that state and local game might be the more sustainable, although in the short term, it seems like you're settling for good rather than perfect. Because you've got to, culture has to fit in there somehow. Culture is so interwoven with our laws, which is why the Supreme Court can reverse itself, usually in positive ways, but who knows going forward. Uh, it's influenced by culture. And so I think that uh, the Me Too movement is a national movement, but then it's paired with organizations like Time's Up, that my buddy Tina Chen is overseeing the legal fund, which is to give women who don't have resources to hire lawyers in the event that they have a cause of action or are being retaliated against, um, the resources, again, to, le to level that playing field. And so I think that there's more than one way to skin a cat and that uh, what you have to be, if you're interested in these public policy issues, is uh, flexible enough and you have to be both patient and have the fierce urgency of now and have kind of a sense of the culture so that you push when people are prepared to be pushed and recognize that if you push too hard too soon, you get a backlash. And so it's, it's a delicate yeah. touch of that pedal. I wonder if you have advice, thinking of people sort of who are preparing to be lawyers and maybe some of them eventually politicians. Um, Oh, I hope uh, so. Anyone here want to run for office? She'll help you out. Come see me later. Right. <laughs> I give you the benefit of a lot of 
experience. Yes, But I, I wonder whether you have things to say about sort of thinking about the, the state and the local. I mean, this is right. This sort of you one was yes. a very so, federal focus in law school and the sort of an orientation of the world yeah. um, of lawyers. I wonder whether you think there's exciting work to be done that lawyers should be thinking more about. I um, do, and I say this from a total. Uh, position of bias, because I practiced for six years in the private sector, uh, law firms here in Chicago, and then um, I left, and I won't tell you the soul-crushing experience it was, because some of you were going to law firms, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, (laughs) but just suffice to say it wasn't for me. Um, But, but, I know, well, but you know it is for many people, and I, and the person who was most influential in my life on this decision, um, had worked in the Corporation Counsel's Office for the City of Chicago for four years. But before that, he'd been a partner at a, far, a law firm here in Chicago uh, that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, it did, and it was very vibrant back then. And so he was, he'd been made partner, gone to the law firm, and he was going back to his law firm. And he said to me, Valerie, you're so miserable. Why don't you try public interest law and work for the City of Chicago Corporation Counsel for a while? If you don't like it, you can always go back to a law firm. And uh, Mayor Harold Washington had just been reelected for his second term. He was the first African-American mayor of Chicago, and this would be the year 1987. And so I took this crazy leap of faith, and what a lot of people, even in my own family, considered a step down, not just in pay, but in stature. Uh, I had an office in the 79th floor of what was then the Sears Tower. It's called something else now. Quincy or... Willis, Willis, thank you. Willis Tower, great office, great view of Lake Michigan, sailboats, the whole nine yards. I was miserable there. And I loved working in the Corporation Counsel's office. And I ultimately oversaw the finance and development side of the Corporation office, so the corporate practice. And the experience I had in the law firm prepared me for it. And in fact, I had a leapfrog promotion in large part because of those six years I had spent toiling away in the private sector. But I felt as though I was practicing law not for an individual client, uh, one corporation doing a deal with another, or in my case, a bank trying to make loans to uh, real estate developers, but on behalf of the citizens of Chicago. And I just thought that sounded really cool, that I was like the people's lawyer. And the issues that we worked on affected the face of our city. And we did major redevelopment agreements with developers that revitalized neighborhoods, countless neighborhoods, around the city, and it, uh, I did it for four years, and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. And I spent a total of eight years in government. I went on to be deputy chief of staff for Mayor Daley, and then I ran the Department of Planning and Development. And even there, well, particularly there, the experience I'd had being the lawyer for that department, I think made me a much better client. I was thinking I'm just generally a much better client having been a lawyer. But I haven't practiced law now since 1991, which is amazing. I'm on the faculty here. Um, <laughs> love that you would even have me back. Uh, but so I think that that experience was invaluable. And when I left the city, I went to go work, ironically, for a private developer, but a developer who was uh, the Habitat Company, who at that point was the receiver for the Chicago Housing Authority. And so I was able to continue a lot of the work I enjoyed most, which was building these mixed-income developments from the private sector. And I 
was only hired by that law by that uh, real estate developer because of the experience I'd had in the public sector. And so I have now spent about half my life in the private sector and half my life in the public. And they have been building blocks upon each other. I think that they have strengthened strengthened my effectiveness at each different stage because of that diversity and enriched experience. So I encourage people who are interested to sign up and and work at the local level, state or local level. I prefer local to state, but at the end of May, just because I've never worked in the state government. But you see the people whose lives you affect, and I I think that's extremely satisfying. I think it's time for us to open things to questions. I think we should make sure we reserve a couple minutes if you want a chance at the end to sort of anything you didn't get a chance to say. But let's, 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 let's... I would love to hear your questions. Yeah, you can call on people. And if you could introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Anna Stapleton. I'm with you all here. And um, in December 2014, I had the amazing privilege of serving as the White House Speaker of the DC Health Office. Um, so my question is about the Me Too movement um, being a political movement and the partisan politics. Um, I think one of the, the things that stood out so starkly about the Kavanaugh hearings was that you know, the Republicans who controlled uh, those things were almost just men. Um, and you wonder about this question of, well, are we supporting women um, just because they support the political movement? Isn't it also important to support women, probably more Republican, but if they had been on that committee, um, might have cared more about a practical um, how do you balance these issues of other uh, sort of partisan politics um, versus do you just support what you So what I try to start with is not partisanship. I try to start with substance of issues because that's what I really care about. Look, I'm a Democrat. I've never voted for anyone who wasn't a Democrat. There have been some Democrats who I haven't voted for, right, because I preferred a different candidate. So I'm not saying all Democrats are are great, but but what's most important to me is uh, our issues. And so you're absolutely right, and there's not even a caveat to what you said. None of the there were no women involved at all on the Republican side because Leader McConnell didn't appoint any women to the Judiciary Committee. And the reason I saw him quoted in the paper for why he didn't do that is because you have to work long hours sometimes. So we have some dinosaurs who are still calling the shots. And so until that changes, you set yourself up for a process where people like you and me feel as though our voices weren't represented. And I would far rather have had a couple of Republican women on the committee than no women at all, just like I would have, I I tweeted at the time, why couldn't they have picked some of the Republican women to sit over the committee determining what to do about ACA? Um, So, and that has nothing to do with partisanship. And, and now partisanship gets into it when you are pressured to vote along party lines, but I think that we can't just presume that will always happen. And if you look at Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, uh, best I could tell, and, and no one knows better than she, but what was really influential in her was she has some indigenous women who suffer sexual violence in astronomically higher rates than our general population who told her their stories. And did she receive an enormous amount of partisan pressure to vote? Yes, you betcha she did. But she listened to her constituents, which is why their voices were so important. And they are the voices that in across our country are the most marginalized, unfairly, in my opinion, and who are way over-criminalized with sexual assault. 
So um, I don't presume someone is going to vote on party lines. Back to the earlier question that Emily asked me about engaging with people with whom you disagree. I think you have to go into it assuming that you can reach them if you make a compelling argument. And you also have to be willing to put yourself in their shoes and say, well, what do you need in order to vote? And this didn't work out, but it might have in that the uh, additional two weeks or week week that they gave for the um, FBI investigation, it might have shown something, and then Susan Collins would have voted. Now, I could argue it could have been a more extensive investigation, and they could have interviewed other people, but let's assume they did everything really well and something did surface. Then that could have been helpful to a Susan Collins. And so I think you have to also look at it that way. Once you get, once you get to the point where you say, okay, Senator Collins, if there's credible evidence, will you vote against him? And she says yes. Then you've got to help her get what she needs in order to do what you want her to do. Um, so the most succinct answer is, is that a way to improve the process is to have better representation of the people whose lives are being affected. Because they are more likely to trust you if they think that you know them. And just let's face it, women, we know our bodies better than men. Other questions? Come on. Don't I get to call on people? Isn't that the way it goes yeah, in Las Vegas? There's your chance. There you go. You get to. Yeah, right there. <laughs> All the way to the back. Yesterday, we were talking about the recent 2017 OCR letter that went through the Dear Colleague letter, and then I think the subsequent guidelines for the QA. What do you kind of think the changes will be going forward, and do you think that you know, that will have a real impact on Title IX enforcement, um, or that schools have really developed their policies according to these earlier Dear Colleague letters? It will definitely have an impact on the enforcement because that will be the guidance for the enforcement. So the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Education and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department will adhere to that guidance. Now, it may be that that guidance will get challenged in court. I hope so. Um, But in the meantime, I think we have to presume that the bumpers that I mentioned in the beginning, the guardrails aren't going to be there. And then the question becomes, how do we empower ourselves to continue this movement and this effort without those very helpful guideline bumpers. Uh, but yeah, it, it, but, and this is the good news as well, is that again, because so many of these cases on college campuses are getting a lot of attention, as well as cases in the workforce, that that helps level that playing field when you don't have the federal government playing the kind of a role that it played under our administration. But it does put more burden and responsibility on the rest of us. Did you have I'm just going to ask why the administration proceeded through it to a colleague letter rather than formal rulemaking. I think in the beginning, um, Arnie, it's a good question. Did you hear the question, why dear colleague letter? He decided that it was important to have a first step and then not just do regulations right off the bat, that he believed that they should have some process to them. And the dear colleague letter was the first step. And then beefing up the civil rights division was the second step. Another step was his decision, which he made without talking to us, but which I thought was genius, to publish the names of colleges and universities that had pending civil rights claims against them, not saying whether they were justified or not, but just so when you're going around applying to college, you can look and see, oh, there are several claims by students that thought that the university didn't adequately, um, uh, didn't adequately protect 
the students on campus. And, and then we did the task force report, which was extraordinarily inclusive. And so I think we moved more gradually in, in that direction as a way of getting people, to the point I made earlier, a chance to catch up, rather than just saying, here are the regulations, boom, take it or leave it. It was intended to be more collegial, but firm. Yes. I'm very heartened to hear what you have to say about your time in local government. It's an area that I'm really passionate about, and I'd just be curious to hear a little bit about if there are particular areas where you think local government can be more effective than the state or even the federal level. Well, as I mentioned, you really do get to see the faces of the people whose lives that you affect. I think one of the, one of the, one of the promises I made myself when I worked in local government is that I would never, ever work for the federal government. Uh, so don't do that. How'd that work out? Yeah, exactly. But, but I had a good reason. My reason was I felt that the further away uh, elected officials were from the people whose lives they affect, the easier it is to get distance from them and not think of them first. And I, I always felt when I worked for the Corporation Council or the city or the chair of the board of the CTA and went to public hearings every mm -hmm. single year, I felt like I was getting um, really important feedback from my clients. And you can't, you don't have an individual client. The mayor wasn't our client. The department heads weren't our client. The people of Chicago were our client. Their stewards were the mayor, and it, I had to kind of go along with him or leave. But I also really felt this enormous, um, I'm writing a book, so I'm really into this right now, because the book is called Finding My Voice. And I found my voice in local government because I found it a lot easier to advocate where I felt passionately. And I used to be very shy. I know that's hard for you guys to believe. But I really, I, I would never do any public speaking. I avoided it in law school. I got, I'm still traumatized. I got called on twice the first day of law school because my maiden name was Bowman. And in criminal law and in property, I got called on both days. I didn't even know what a tort was. So it was really, it was a sad way to begin law school. I say this to say to you that in local government, because I felt, particularly when we were doing these redevelopment agreements around the city and trying to convince developers to do mixed income housing when they just wanted to do market rate housing, I felt like I was speaking for people who had quiet voices, who didn't have anyone representing them. And that's what public interest law does for you. And when you do it at the local level, you, you meet with the people. I would go out to community meetings, and they would tell me what their dreams were for their community. And then it was my job to try to figure out how to turn that dream into a reality, and then I get to drive around or walk around and see what we were able to do and see people who were not working have a bank where they are now able to bank in a community that had been unbanked for decades and, and see abandoned buildings that have been either renovated or torn down that were blighting a community where there were drug havens and now kids are playing out in front. And so you get the positive reinforcement, I don't want to say quicker, but like right here. And I think in the federal government, although your potential for impacting people is just far more dramatic, you don't always get the positive or even negative reinforcement. And so part of why I liked my portfolio in the White House and why I was willing to violate my rule of never working there, other than my friend was the president, was, um, <laughs> I hadn't counted for that, is, uh, is my portfolio. And it was the state and local. And it was public engagement, and that was the gateway for all kinds of different constituencies, all constituencies, including conservative, you know, right-wing evangelicals, who they were as welcome as my progressives on the left. Everyone was welcome because 
part of, and, and then maybe this stands to the broader point, is that part of how I saw my role as an advisor to the president was to make sure he made informed decisions, informed by you, the American people. And not just you that voted for him, but you, the people who didn't. And in fact, one of his um, requirements of us was, and he said it all the time, but it comes second nature to me, because I started in local government, is to listen most closely to the people who disagree with you. You already know what the people who agree with you think, but you might learn something from the people uh, who you would think you disagree with, and you might even change your mind. And wouldn't that be earth-shattering? And good, because that's growth. That's progress. Do it. Do it. It'd be a great experience for you. I don't know anybody who ever regretted working, but I will warn you, my first day of work, I walked in the door, fifth floor of City Hall, any of you who've been to City Hall knows that's where the office of the mayor is, and I loved Mayor Washington, I was so thrilled my office would be on the same floor as his, and I went down the corridor, and there's Corporation Council's office, and my boss met me out in reception, and he said, let me take you to your office, and he did these air quotes, and I'm like, oh, why is he doing air quotes? <laughs> I've been in this... The Sewers Tower. And he takes me to this little cubicle with a window that faced an alley. And he must have seen the look on my face. And he goes, you get a window. Nobody gets windows. <laughs> but, and this is directed to all of you who are interested in local government, I am telling you from my first day there, and I never changed my view a single moment, my first day there I knew that's where I belonged. I loved it. Very satisfying. All right, that was a high note. What else you got? Anything else? Any other questions? Any final words? Yes. So my final words to you are, oh, my goodness, how lucky you are. Um, and I can remember when my grandmother used to say this to me, like, oh, only to be young again. And I'm not really saying that because I like the benefit of all the experience I've had. But you are coming of age at such an incredible time in our world. And our world hungers for your leadership. And I just want you to appreciate that you have the benefit of the best education in the world. There is no better legal education that anyone else is getting anywhere than what you're getting right here. And I just want you to, to have the wind at your back, to know whether you practice law forever or you stop, as I did. Uh, whatever your passion holds for you going forth, just really make the best of it and push way outside that comfort zone that might hold you back from taking chances. The one the piece of advice that my friend Alvin gave me was so true is that we have safety nets. This degree that you will get from one of the finest institutions in the world is like the best safety net you could ever hope for and use it. Like it's okay to fall and you will bounce back because of it. And if you don't fail a few times in life, then I would say you haven't tried hard enough. You haven't gotten outside of your comfort zone. And if you care about issues like uh, sexual assault and harassment, which I assume you all do because you showed up today, then do your part, and not just in your professional life, but in your personal life too. And when you become dads, um, a good friend of mine said something a while ago, and he said, I'm fighting for this not because I have daughters, but because I have sons. And you know, raise your sons well and, and hold your daughters up and, and lead by example, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because just as hopefully um, you are taking note as you have since you've been able to pay attention to what happens in, in the public life, um, so will be people watching you. And you will be standing on shoulders, but there are people who are going to want to climb up on yours. And so um, how you comport yourself really does matter. It matters a lot. People are watching. 
And with that, please uh, join me in thanking Professor Buss and Ms. Jerry. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.